0: Tonight we're going to continue our series in Mark's Gospel and over the last two Sundays we've seen the confronting authority of Jesus over demons and we've seen his comforting authority over people who have faced sickness and death. And over the next two Sundays we're going to be looking at a tale of two different kingdoms. And as usual, there's an outline of the talk or a full transcript of the talk uh, on the table in the foyer, or if you're watching online, uh, it's on the live stream page of the Bundy website. You can download it. But more importantly, keep your Bibles open, because we're going to be looking at a number of Bible references together. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we pray that you would be merciful. Please pour out your Spirit, uh, that your Spirit might convict us of your word about Jesus the King. Please speak uh, through me, Uh, help me to be faithful, bold, loving, and clear with your word, and help us to be hearers and doers of your your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, It seems that the uh, most popular movies in recent times are about the battle between two different kingdoms, two opposing ways of doing things, competing and conflicting about which way is the right way to live. For example the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Think of the battle between Sauron's evil kingdom and the Fellowship of the Ring, who are trying to take that kingdom down. Or the Star Wars saga between the rebellion side of the Skywalkers versus the Empire of the Dark Side. Or the Avengers saga. There's the Avengers way of looking at life in the universe versus that of Thanos, who wants to wipe out half of the universe. Then there's the ongoing battle between Harry Potter and Voldemort or most recently the nature loving Navi versus the nature destroying humanity in Avatar uh, and then there's the greatest movie of all time dumb and uh, I've struck I just snuck that one in that's sorry um, <laughs> it seems about all these stories of battles and kingdoms competing with each other we, we seem to be drawn into them don't we we want to know which kingdom is going to prevail We want to choose a side, and we want to be on the side that triumphs. And we wonder when the crunch comes whether we will do the heroic, selfless thing or the selfish, cowardly thing. And tonight's passage is about a battle between two different kingdoms, a conflict between two different worldviews, two different ways of looking at life and what it means to have meaning and purpose. And by the end of tonight, you will be given a choice between these two different kingdoms. Well, here's the two points for tonight's talk: kingdom come and kingdom conflict. Well, let's look at our first point, kingdom come. You can see right at the outset of Jesus' public ministry that he is bringing in the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, the time is fulfilled The kingdom of God is come near, repent and believe the good news. Uh, Every time Jesus preached the gospel, he was calling people to turn away from one kingdom and to join another kingdom, his kingdom. That's what the word repent means, to change your mind about who you think is the king and to follow the true king. And there's no doubt in Jesus' mind that he himself is the true king. At the end of Matthew's gospel, when he's about to leave the disciples, he says to them in Matthew 28, Jesus came near and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All authority everywhere has been given to me. That's a big statement, isn't it? That's the language of a king. And that's how we should think about the passage before us tonight, it's about the king extending his kingdom. Verse 7, he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and he gave authority over unclean spirits. Notice that phrase, gave authority. Jesus the king is now giving his apostles authority and he's sending them out to be his ambassadors. Uh, the title apostle quite literally means one who is sent sent with the authority to represent the sender. And the disciples who witness the ministry of Jesus, they're going to imitate the ministry of Jesus, and it's going to come with his power. We see that in verse 12. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. Now, on the last two Sundays, we've seen Jesus himself doing these very things. And so, like their king, the apostles are doing the work of ushering in the kingdom of God. Now, we're not told exactly where or how long they went out for on this trip. But if they started from Nazareth, where we left off last week, it's likely that it would have included the villages around Lake Galilee in northern Israel. And next week, we're going to see the end result of the ministry of the Twelve. Now, in verse 8, we see that this kingdom work is to be done by the 12 without their own resources. They are to bring very little with them. Now, in the different gospels, the lists of things are slightly different, but in the end, it's not much that they're taking. Instead, they're going to rely on God to provide for them through the generosity of others. And we're going to see that it's God's power, not their own, that brings the results and immediately you get the sense that this is a different kind of kingdom. There's nothing excessive, nothing flashy, there's no red carpets, no royal carriages. The king and his kingdom have very different priorities. Now, the coronation of King Charles III will take place on May the 6th. Now, that's the ceremony where he will officially be recognized as king over the Commonwealth. There's going to be lots of pomp and circumstance in this ceremony, military guards, parades, crowds lining the streets, and the cost of the coronation, do you know how much it's going to cost? It's estimated at over a 100 million pounds. And King Charles is going to wear the 362-year-old King Edward crown, entrusted with jewels worth around 57 million US dollars. It's very different to King Jesus, isn't it? King Jesus was born in a manger. King Jesus, in his ministry, we're told, had no permanent place to lay his head. He lived more like someone who is homeless. And here's another difference. The role of King Charles is largely that of a figurehead. He has no real power over the countries of the Commonwealth. He can do lots of charitable work. He can lobby people about climate change, but he has no authority over his subjects. But King Jesus comes with real power. And we've seen that power to to teach, to heal, to drive out demons, to raise the dead. But Jesus also has authority to judge. Look at verse 11. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now to shake the dust off your feet is a symbol of judgment. If uh, villages are not going to welcome the message of the king, that is as good as rejecting the king. And if you say no to the king, eventually he will give you what you want, and he will also reject you. Uh, The Apostle Paul once spoke to a group of intelligent people in Athens, in the Areopagus. And he spoke about how God has made each one of us to reach out to him, that none of us are too far from finding him. But he also gave this warning in Acts chapter 17. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now I was talking there about Jesus, the one that God has established as judge and king. The one that all of us will have to one day give an account to for the life that God has given to each one of us. Uh, John Piper, the author and pastor, reflected on his own journey in his life of trying to find purpose and meaning. Uh, In his book called Don't Waste Your Life, he wrote this. You get one pass at life. That's all. Only one. And the lasting measure of that life is Jesus Christ. That very plaque hung on the wall by our front door for years. I saw it every time I left home. What would it mean to waste my life? That was a burning question, or more positively, what would it mean to live well? It's a good question, isn't it? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Now, if Jesus is king, and if he's bringing in the kingdom of God, then life is all about King Jesus. It's as simple and as challenging as that. To live well is to give your life for the cause of King Jesus, And to live poorly is to ignore and reject King Jesus. Now, that brings us to the second point tonight, which is kingdom conflict. The kingdom of God coming through the ministry of Jesus and his disciples comes crashing into another kingdom. Now, the ministry of the 12 is around Galilee, and that's under the human rule of Herod. Now, Herod, as we'll soon see, represents the kingdom of self. And both of these kingdoms come into conflict with a heavy price. Verse 14, King Herod heard about about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. Now, if you started reading the Gospel of Mark from chapter 1, reading this verse would have come as a bit of a shock because this Gospel started with John the Baptist with a bang. John was the prophet like Elijah. He was the messenger of God who was preparing the way for the Messiah, God's king. John was the one who baptized Jesus, his cousin, The king. Uh, John's important role was to be the support act for the main event, Jesus. The one who said that uh, Jesus would be greater, far greater than himself. But the last we saw back in chapter one was that John was arrested and we were not told why. And now we see that John has paid the ultimate price for serving God. He's been killed at the hands of King Herod. And we're going to find out why. But first I'm going to give you some of the sordid background of the main players who caused John's death. Herod, his wife Herodias, and her daughter Salome. Okay, So here's a bit of family tree work right here. Uh, Now the first thing to note about this Jewish royal family is that this royal family has very limited power. Because everyone in Israel lives under the power of the Roman Empire. So the ones with real power are the Roman Emperor and the Senate. In Rome, Israel is an occupied land. Now, the Roman emperor and the senate allow this royal family of Herod the Great to have some limited powers. Uh, in fact, the Herod mentioned in our passage tonight was not even a king at all. He was officially a tetrarch. That means he ruled over one quarter of the country, uh, as approved by Rome over the northern part of Israel uh, around Lake Galilee. He's a wannabe king, okay? Now, there's a lot of Herods mentioned in the Bible, so let's sort some of these out. And we start with Herod the Great. That's the Herod you hear about at Christmas, the one who slaughtered uh, young boys about Jesus' age after the Magi told him about the birth of Jesus. A bit insecure there, trying to get rid of possible contenders to his throne. Now, Herod the Great had seven sons to five different women, and these include... Uh, Aristobulus, Herod Philip, and Herod Antipas. Uh, They were half-brothers to each other, so same dad, different mothers. Now, the Herod mentioned in our passage tonight is Herod Antipas, the tetrarch. Now, here is where it gets deliciously complicated, okay? Now, Aristobulus had five children, including a daughter named Herodias. That's the Herodias in our passage. Now, Herodias marries her uncle, Herod Philip. And they have a daughter, Salome. That's the daughter of Herodias. That's not mentioned by name in our passage. Now, Herodias divorces her husband, uncle, Philip, for the purpose of hooking up with another uncle, Herod Antipas. Okay, you're getting a picture of what this family is like, yeah? Now, in order for Herod Antipas to hook up with Herodias, he also divorces Phasaelus, his first wife, daughter of King Aratas of Nabatea. A neighboring kingdom to Israel. Now keep that one in mind because this divorce came back to bite him a bit later on. Thus ends our lesson in Ancestry.com. <laughs> okay, that's a snapshot of that family tree. The whole situation is pretty seedy, isn't it? Now we got the two main players, Herod and Herodias. And these, are, these two are the king and queen of the kingdom of self-interest. The things they do are completely motivated by self-interest. They are utterly selfish, sinful before a holy God. And their sin has devastating consequences for themselves and for others. John the Baptist calls them out for their sin. The Old Testament law in Leviticus 20 says, If a man marries his brother, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother. They will be childless. No fear, no favor. John the Baptist calls it, as he sees it, under God's kingdom. He tells Herod that what he and Herodias are doing is sinful. Now, Herodias doesn't like this criticism. She doesn't hold back. Her first option is to silence John by killing him. Now, that's an interesting way of dealing with your critics, isn't it? Now, the self-interest of Herodias is very straightforward. She's ambitious, she's driven, she's manipulative. She's going to do whatever it takes to get whatever she wants, even if that means murder. Now, in in my almost 50 years of life, I'm really glad that I've only really met one or two people like that, people who would do anything to get what they want, to lie, cheat, steal, throw anyone under the bus. Now, Herod's self-interest is a bit more complicated. I think he's much more like us. Uh, Even though he was murderous in the end, he took a longer way to get there. We're going to see in this passage, he's lustful, he's arrogant, he's people-pleasing, he's fearful, he's proud, he's influenced, he's indecisive. In other words, he's just like us, isn't he? Now, even though John is critical of Herod, Herod's first option is not to kill him, but to listen to him. Look at verse 20. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. Herod is shown in this passage as not really being sure who to listen to. In one ear is his wife slash niece Herodias, telling him to kill John. But in the other is John the prophet telling Herod from the Bible, telling him what God wants. Now Herod recognizes there's something different about John. Something from God, something holy, righteous. But but Herod can't figure out what to do with this teaching. He's intrigued, but he's also indecisive. He's easily influenced one way or the other. But Herodias, on the other hand, she knows exactly what she wants. She's decisive. Her self-interest, she's going to manipulate her daughter and her husband. Verse 21. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, When whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. Salome and her dance have inspired much artwork over the years, often de- depicting her as some sort of seductress. Now, I think that's wrong, because it's more likely that Salome was about 13 or 14 years old, not much older than a child. I, I don't believe Salome had much choice or agency in her mother's schemes. It's likely she danced for Herod at the prompting of her mother, Herodias. Now, we're not told if her dance was sexually suggestive or not, but I believe Herodias knew exactly what her husband Herod was like. After some food, plenty of booze at this feast, people to impress, she knew that Herod would lust over Salome after her dance. Why? Because men don't make that kind of promise. Ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you when they're thinking with their brains. Herod is making this promise with another part of his anatomy. So remember the family tree, okay? Here you've got a young teenage girl who's lusted over by a middle-aged man who just happens to be her great-uncle as well as his stepdaughter. It's classy, isn't it? Verse 25, "'At once she hurried to the king and said, "'I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately.'" Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests he did not want to refuse her, the king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. It's a shocking scene, isn't it? Imagine a 13-year-old girl asking for the head of a religious opponent at the behest of her mother's self-interest, and Herod is trapped by his own self-interest, He's just made this outlandish promise to Salome to give up to half of his kingdom in front of all his guests and she's requested the death of someone he's feared and tried to protect and someone he enjoyed listening to. But if he doesn't deliver on this extravagant promise, well then he's going to suffer the shame of not keeping his word at his own birthday party and he'll lose face in front of his guests, the who's who of Galilee. So in other words, this self-proclaimed king has been snookered by a teenage girl. And meanwhile, Herodias is in the background saying to herself, checkmate. I got what I want. John's head on a platter. And that's how our passage ends. With John's disciples burying the headless corpse of someone who was martyred for doing his job. It's a a gruesome episode, isn't it? And the question is why? Why would Mark include this grim tale in his book? I think Mark is contrasting two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Jesus and John, where you do and say what God wants. And then you get the kingdom of Herod and Herodias, which represent sinful self interest. Now, it's not only John who dies at the hands of this kingdom. But Mark is preparing us for the moment when the king himself, Jesus, will die at the hands of the kingdom of self-interest. So Mark is preparing us to answer this question, which kingdom? Which kingdom for you? Which kingdom are you going to live under, the kingdom of Jesus or the kingdom of Herod? The kingdom where you give up your life for the sake of others or the kingdom where you are consumed by serving yourself. Now, before you decide, do you you want to hear what happened to Herod and Herodias? Interested? Now, remember Herod's first marriage, the marriage to Phasaelus that ended up in him divorcing her to marry Herodias. Well, according to the first century historian, Josephus, King Aratas of Nabatea, that's the father-in-law, of Herod, the first father-in-law. Well, he declares war with Herod Antipas, probably not liking how his daughter was treated. And Aratas destroyed Herod's army, causing Herod to lose face. Now, Herod is not one to go down with a fight, and Herodias urged her husband, Herod Antipas, to appeal to Emperor Caligula for the official title of king, not just of Tetrarch. Now, she did this out of jealousy because her brother, Agrippa, had also been granted a royal title by Rome. But Agrippa, in a cunning power play against Herodias, his sister, and Herod, well, he tells Caligula that Herod is plotting against the Roman Empire. So Caligula strips Herod of all his territory and power and gives that to Agrippa, and then Caligula banishes Herod and Herodias to Gaul, where they eventually die in obscurity. Now, the historian Josephus, not a Christian, a Jewish historian who sympathized with the Romans, he writes this in his account called the Antiquities. Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God and was a very just punishment for what he did against John, called the Baptist. For Herod had him killed, although he was a good man and had urged the Jews to exert themselves to virtue. In other words, Jews and Christians of the day would have seen that Herod's fall was the work of God's judgment. You can't pretend to be king and get away with it. You can't kill the servants of God and escape his judgment. And the first readers of Mark's gospel, they would have read it maybe around A.D. 70, around about then. And Herod died in A.D. 39. So it's within one generation. Everyone reading this for the first time would have known what had happened to Herod. His kingdom of self-interest did not last. So let me ask you that question again. Which kingdom for you? Now you might say, (laughs) I'm... I'm not like Herod and Herodias. I'm not murderous. I'm not consumed with jealous ambition. I'm not going to throw away a marriage just for lust. That could never, ever happen to me. Now, I've lived for long enough now to know this. No one wakes up. No one wakes up one morning and decides to be the king of self-interest. No, you get there with a series of small but important decisions along the way. Uh, I have a a friend, Tamas. We met at a scripture union camp at the end of year 12. We became good friends at uni. We played in a band together for a few years. Uh, Tamas has gone on to be a much more talented artist than me. But while at uni, Tamas lived at one of the residential colleges. And he he would often tell me about life in college because I was a day student who used to come in to uni during the day. He used to tell me that college life was really all about students' indulging in heaps of sex and alcohol and he told me that he made a decision very early on at college to identify as a follower of Jesus and that meant no to sex and no to drinking excessively and at college there was this immense pressure to fit in often applied from older year students to first years And one night at college in O-Week, his first O-Week, Tamis told me about a particularly excessive alcoholic bender. There were rubbish bins filled with drunken vomit. And people were so drunk that they didn't notice that one of the first-year girls was unconscious. Except for Tamis, that is. Because Tamis wasn't drunk. He could see that the girl was struggling to breathe and he called the paramedics. Because Tamas wasn't drunk, he could make sure she was okay until they arrived. Everyone else was drunk not only on booze, but drunk on self-interest. It's those small decisions, isn't it? Should I let them know I'm a Christian? Or should I worry about what they think of me? Should I get pissed tonight? Or should I look out? For the ones who are getting pissed. Should I take advantage of that girl when she's drunk? Or should I help her? Tamas answered all those questions. He said no to self. Yes to King Jesus. Yes to the good of others. Herod Could have gone down a different path. At one point, he was listening to the teaching of John, but Herod ended up where he did because of those small and important decisions. Should I stay with my first wife or should I give in to lust? Should I listen to my second wife or the teaching of John? Should I fight the urge to look at my stepdaughter that way? Should I open my mouth in front of my guests or just keep it shut? Should I be swayed by what others think of me? Or should I just not care? Should I fear man or fear God? And you know how Herod answered those questions, don't you? He answered them all with yes to self-interest. Now, he may have dabbled with the kingdom of God, and if he would kept listening to John, he might have gone the way of King Jesus. But in the end, Herod chose himself over Jesus. We know this, Luke 23. This is after the arrest of Jesus. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Let me ask you again, which kingdom for you? Now, some of you here tonight are trying to have a foot in each kingdom. Depending on who you're with, you're changing your behavior. You're a good little Christian here on Sundays and at Bible study, and then you're a different person around your mates. And the thing is, King Jesus, he deserves more than just one foot. He deserves all of you. He doesn't want indecision between him and yourself. He wants you to deny yourself, to throw your lot in with him. And you need to learn from the indecision of Herod. He wanted a bit of both, and in the end, he lost it all. Now, some of you tonight are wondering about the cost of following King Jesus. Now, let me speak about that. And I have to be honest, there is a cost. I'm not going to sugarcoat Christianity and say that it's pain-free when you follow Jesus. It's not. We've seen that tonight with John the Baptist. And in Mark chapter 8, Jesus said to those who considered following him, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now the cross, for his hearers, it's not a thing of beauty that you hang around your neck or you put on your church. The cross was an executioner's tool. It was a symbol of shame and certain death. And so Jesus is saying that to be a true disciple of his kingdom, you must be willing to pay the ultimate price, just like John the Baptist. So if you want to live this kingdom, you have to count the cost because it may cost you your life. You're going to endure shame and rejection by your culture. It may mean making decisions that will leave you poorer than your friends. It may mean disappointing your parents. It may mean staying single and childless. It may mean giving up a secure and successful career. It may mean moving to a less glamorous suburb or country to serve King Jesus. And as I speak, there are millions of followers of King Jesus around the world right now who are paying that price in prison who've had houses and churches destroyed and dealing with the grief of that, dealing with the grief of loved ones who've been killed for the sake of following King Jesus. Now, there are some in this church who know that price, whose families have rejected them, who've lost businesses, who can never return to their home countries because of the threat of death. Now, why would anyone do this? Why would anyone pick up your cross for the king? Why? Because the king picked up his cross for you. Mark 10, verse 44, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, do you think the Herods of the world would give their life for you? Think Trump, think Putin, right? Do you think those ambitious bosses that you work overtime for, those guys, do you think they would sacrifice themselves for you? Do you think the friends who get smashed with you on a Saturday night, do you think they're going to die in your place when push comes to shove? In the kingdom of self, how many would give themselves for the sake of others? How many? You see, Jesus would. No, Jesus did as a ransom for me and for you. The king paid the ultimate price. He loved you. The cost of following this king is high, but he paid that price for you. So why wouldn't you pay the price for him? Now, my last application is ambassadors for the king. Now, the 12 who were sent out by Jesus, they were his ambassadors. The Apostle Paul spoke of himself as an ambassador for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, I'm speaking now to those of you who have planted both feet firmly in the camp of King Jesus. Those of you who identify as followers of Jesus, it's a good thing for the kingdom of Jesus to grow. That's what he wants, because that's good for people. I want you to think of yourself as an ambassador for Jesus, whether that's in your workplace, your workshop at uni, your circle of friends, your share house, the kitchen that you share at college, Let everything you do, let everything you say, point others to Jesus. Why? Because you know the secret of life, don't you? You know what gives meaning and what gives purpose. Be reconciled to God. That's the secret. You know, people turn to alcohol. They turn to weed. They turn to meth, food, money, porn, whatever it is. Why? Why do they turn to those things? Because of pain, trauma, fear, guilt, shame, pride. And you have something so much better to offer. Be reconciled to God. The king who died for your sin, the king who will never leave you, never forsake you, even when you suffer. And being an ambassador for Christ, it's not a role, it's a mindset. It's a mindset that comes to the small and important decisions. For the sake of King Jesus, I'm going to turn up to church and Bible study. For the sake of King Jesus, I'm going to spend time in his word and in prayer. For the sake of King Jesus, I'm going to serve regularly in humility. For the sake of King Jesus, I'm going to invite my friend to focus, to Christian Union church. For the sake of King Jesus, I'm going to say no to those extra shifts at work, and I'm going to go on that camp. I'm going to serve on that beach mission. I'm going to go on that mission trip. Even, even though it's going to cost me thousands, I want to see where God leads me if I go on that mission trip. Tamas and I, uh, we served on Sorrento Beach Mission while we were at uni. Great times. And it was there that he met Bron, who went on to direct that beach mission. Tamas and Bron got married, and they then went to Myanmar for seven years to serve in aid, development, and public health. And they live in Melbourne now with their daughters. Tamas is a lecturer at the uni that we attended, is an expert on democracy and development in Myanmar. And Bron is a GP who specializes in women's health. She was part of that medical team that cared for the people trapped in the public housing towers in Kensington during the COVID lockdown. Tamas painted this portrait of Bron during that time. Bron and Tamas are some of the most selfless, humble, compassionate people that I know. They are heroes to me. Everything they do, they do for others. And they do for King Jesus. Now, they would be awkward. They'd be embarrassed by the things that I'm saying tonight. Because they would just say, we're ordinary Christians. We attend a local church in the western suburbs. They would just say, we're servants of the king, and that's the point, isn't it that's the point each and every day making those small, important decisions for others and for their king. Last year, a group of us celebrated Tamás's birthday, thirty years of friendship, and when I nice was, well, all these friends. I had to pinch myself because my heroes are my friends, beautiful, loving, loyal, sacrificial friends who would love others with courage and commitment, who live for King Jesus. I'm going to be honest. I have paid very little to be in the kingdom of Jesus. And he has given me so much more. Choose King Jesus. Choose his kingdom. Because I want you to be blessed as much as I have been. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father God, we know we are in a battle. We see the kingdoms. Help us to learn from what we've seen of Herod tonight, to be warned, to turn to the kingdom of King Jesus, the selfless, loving, sacrificial King. Please help us to plant both our feet firmly in his camp. Help us to give our lives to serve like King Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.